So it's uh, October 9th, 2013. Our message tonight is called Unseen Footprints. And uh, whether you were in traffic court with me today or on the phone with the state comptroller's office like Matthew, or maybe you were wrestling with an unruly child, or just working in a hectic workplace, I have noticed that it is difficult to be in Christ. There was not one amen out there because you don't want to be caught on tape, but I saw a lot of head movement. It's a whole lot easier to walk on that wide path of destruction, of course, until you reach its end. Turn with me then to 2 Corinthians. We're going to be in the fourth chapter, and I want to pick up with you in the eighth verse. Say there when you're there. We are hard-pressed on how many sides? Every side. Every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair. Is it our right to be hard-pressed, our right to be perplexed? Yes, but it is not okay to be crushed and, and despairing. Persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal bodies. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. It is written, I believe, therefore I spoke. With that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise with us Jesus, I'm sorry, raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. All this is for your benefit so that the grace that is reaching more and more people, say it, more and more people. Why is it worth it, friends? More and more people. You are doing more today than you were last year. You are. As a body of believers, you are reaching more and more people. May cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Look at somebody say, I'm not going to lose heart. Come on now, it's difficult, but I'm not ready to quit. The devil has pressed me on every side, but I'm still here. I may at times be confused, perplexed even, but I'm not about to throw in the towel or give it up because I'm fully persuaded that God is able to perform that which he has promised. Turn with me to Hebrews 11 and verse 6. Say there when you were there. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Believe that he exists where? Even demons believe that he exists. The context of this verse seems to suggest that the great men of faith didn't just believe that God exists, but that he existed in their circumstances. When they were being run out of Egypt as murderers, when they were facing un. Numerable forces that had come to conquer the people of God. 
when they were being sawed in two, they believed that God existed in that situation and that he would reward the man who seeks him. So some of us have lost our jobs. Some of us are fighting with our health. Some of us are fighting with harassing circumstances all around us. I believe God exists in this situation and that he will reward the man who seeks him. I believe it that this is the only way to please him is when all has turned against you and yet you look and say, nevertheless, God. I want to encourage you to find some Holy Ghost defiance tonight. We do not have to bow a knee to Baal. We do not have to be conformed to what this world says about us. I choose to believe that in this situation right now, God exists. And he will reward those who seek him. There were three prophecies tonight. One in an unknown tongue, one that was an interpretation, and one that was just an out-and-out encouragement prophecy. All of them spoke to me. All of them are reminding me. The Lord is with us. The Lord loves us. The Lord built us to endure this kind of resistance. We cannot grow weary and lose heart. This is the time to grab yourself by the bootstraps of faith and say, I was made for this. Look at the person next to you and say, I was made for this. Turn with me to Psalm 77. Let's talk unseen footprints. It's never been any different than it is right now. We think if we had lived in Jesus' day, if we had seen those things, oh, it would be different. If we had been there for the exodus, it would have been different. But you don't understand, Pastor. I can't see God at work in what's going on in my life. It's so messed up. It's so difficult. I've fallen so far or screwed it up so bad that I just can't see how God can fix it. Friends, if I believed that, I would never be going to the meeting I'm going to tomorrow. We live a life of faith. It is footstep after footstep of faith. Look at Psalm 77, starting in verse 12. I will meditate on all your works and consider all your mighty deeds. Your ways, O God, are holy. What God is so great as our God? That's a question, friends. What God is so great as our God? Oh, man, there is none. Whoever did for you the things that he has already done, let us meditate for a minute on the goodness of God. Steve, is there anybody in the heavens, anybody on the earth that could take you from the basement to the boardroom the way the living God has done it? Could anybody have given you the kind of radiant bride that he gave you? Did you find a Boaz in the arms of somebody other than the living God? Oh, man, our end is going to be better than our beginning. I remember the day Brad fell in love with Jana at a Bucky's. Oh, my goodness. That's like a twofer right there. Thought he was perusing the candy aisle, but God had something sweeter for him. You never know how close we are to succeeding, friends, if we give up. So I'm just going to say it, and I'm glad the kids are gone. Hell no. All the power of hell can line up against me and I'm just going to smile and say, no in the name of Jesus. I serve a God and there is none who is greater than him. 
With your mighty arm, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. Verse 16, the waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you and writhed. The very depths were convulsed. The clouds poured down water. The skies resounded with thunder. Your arrows flashed back and forth. Your thunder was heard in the whirlwind. Your lightning lit up the world. The earth quaked or trembled and quaked. Look at verse 19. It's an important one. Your path led through the sea. Your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. I want you to know that our God will lead you right through the trouble. And sometimes you don't even get to see his footprints. Where is God in our circumstances? I choose to believe he is standing with me. He is leading me. And I don't have to see a footprint in the dirt to believe it. I believe he exists in our troubles. And he will reward the man who earnestly seeks him. Do you believe God will reward you? You got to work for it. Say, oh, no, 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 no. God just, he, he credits us with everything. He credited you with salvation. If you want the rewards that are ours in the kingdom, you have to do his work, friend. You have to build on the foundation of the apostles. You have to earnestly seek him and believe that he will reward you for doing the hard work of the kingdom. If everything that was Paul's was credited to Paul at salvation, why did he work to obtain a resurrection? Why does Hebrews talk about a better resurrection? Why does star differ from star if there is no difference in the resurrection? I'm telling you there will be generals in the age to come and there will be those who did not live up to their full potential. We can agree it's all good, but I'm not aiming for the minimum. That means we embrace the difficult, Spencer. It means that we laugh in the face of the enemy, Brent. It means that we take it head on and say, nevertheless, God, I am building a better resurrection. Somebody say amen. amen. Look at Isaiah 43 with me. Say there when you were there. Isaiah 43 and the first verse. But now this is what the Lord says. He who created you. Who made you, saints? Oh, come on. He who created you, O Jacob. He who formed you, O Israel. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name and you are mine when you pass through the waters. Not if you pass through the waters. What's it say? All oh, the mighty waters are going to come. It's going to happen. He doesn't say if. He says when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. You are going to go through rivers. You're going to get wet. You are going to experience the heat of the flames. But they are not going to overcome you. Jesus the Messiah, Yeshua HaMashiach, stood boldly, defiantly, anything except arrogantly. He was confident, but he was not boastful. He stood with the backdrop of the Roman gods and the Greek gods, and he said, the gates 
of hell will not prevail against my church. But he didn't say they wouldn't try. He didn't say that it wouldn't feel overwhelming. He didn't say that at times you wouldn't look for a way out. He didn't say that your flesh wouldn't squeal and squirm. He said that he's able to make you stand. Come on, who's inside of you? And if he who is in you is greater than he that is in the world, who can stand against you? No one. Oh, pastor, I don't know if I need this pep talk. You need it worse than you can imagine. The days are growing dark and you are supposed to be growing brighter and brighter and brighter. It's time to take our eyes off what we don't have. Time to take our eyes off how difficult it is and start praising God for what we do have and what will be ours tomorrow and the day after that. I am living for an eternal reward. And it motivates me every day. Has he deposited in you? Has he blessed you? Oh, then he has owed the increase and he's going to have it. It remains then that we go through waters, that we go through fires, and we don't see his path. This means that you're perplexed at times, but not despairing. It means that you're hard-pressed, but you're not crushed. It means that all hell can break out against you, and you may not know which way is up, and you may not know what to do, but you know who you're doing it for. And you do not give up, saints. You don't quit. You don't lay down. You're in an eternal struggle and there aren't any days off. And how do we fight? Paul said we fight the fight of faith. You begin to trust that God is working in this situation, not just your neighbors, not just some televangelist. Mine now. And so I will not give up this ground. I won't let my smile go. I won't let my Bible go. I won't let my fellowship go. I will not let my prayer life go. In the name of Jesus, I say no to hell. Hebrews eleven twenty seven is an enlightening verse. There are men that have walked this race before us that saw something that the Bible says is invisible. By faith, he left Egypt not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. Oh, is there a man among us that can explain how you see something that's invisible? Oh, it's being certain of what you cannot see so that it can be said that you see it. It causes us to persevere. It causes us to fight even against a king's edict. It causes us to press on today, tomorrow, and you tell that fox by the third day, I will reach my goal. I have laid hold of that which is invisible. It's invisible to me right now. It was invisible to me most of yesterday, most of the day before that. Every once in a while, I catch a slight glimpse, but it's enough because I've seen him who is invisible, and I will not be deterred. How about you? Come on, how about you? Will you be deterred? There is a path that leads through those waters, and you may not see his footprints, but they are surely there. They are there, saints, because he said he would be with you in the waters. He said he would be with you in the fire, and you would in no way be overcome. 
I cannot be beaten because I am the church of the living God. Oh, come on, can you not pick up just a little bit of Holy Ghost audacity tonight? I can't be defeated because the Holy Ghost is inside of me. He is with me. What's going to overcome me? Bring an army against me, and I will speak the word of God and lead them back to my master blind, waiting to be healed. Do you think that Elijah was so very different from us? As to this invisible, have you ever heard the criticism of the book of Esther? Mm. Esther, this little bitty book doesn't even mention the name of God. It's nowhere to be found in the book of Esther. Perhaps it's not canonical. Maybe it's not inspired. Who can tell us what the book of Esther is about? Oh, man, maybe you saw the movie. Maybe you've read it a few times. The book of Esther, chapters 1 through 3. The Jews are in danger. That's what's happening. In chapters 1 through 3, there is an edict that is issued. The first two chapters, in the middle of the Jewish danger, a woman named Hadassah, who the Persians called Esther, becomes queen. See, God is raising people to positions of prominence even in the midst of the danger. He has brought you to this place for this reason. By the third chapter, a guy named Haman. When Jews hear that word, they make noise. A guy named Haman. Oh, see, it doesn't hurt your feelings, does it? If you had grown up hearing about Haman like the chupacabra or the sasquatch, or the boogeyman, except he was real. He issued an annihilation order against the Jews for no other reason than their customs. He said, these people are different, and their customs are different from everybody on the planet. And let's come right down to it, friends. Why was your day difficult? Why was your week difficult? Isn't it because you don't lie like they do? Isn't it because you don't steal like they do? Isn't it because you weren't biting and devouring to get ahead like they were? So you got squeezed out of a promotion. How did the other guy get it? See, you'll always be hated because your life is different than their lives are. But you won't be hated by everyone. So Haman hated the Jews. Chapters 4 through 7 detail Esther's courage bringing deliverance to the Jewish people. By the time you get to the 8th and ninth chapter... The Jews have defeated their enemies and even taken up arms against them. And we have a feast of Purim to celebrate all that God did. By the 10th chapter of the book of Esther, a man named Mordecai who mostly stood in the background and gave wise advice is being elevated. Ah, but nowhere is God's name mentioned in the book. Must not be canonical. How can you have a book of the Bible? The Bible's about God and it doesn't even mention God. His footprints were also not leading through the Red Sea. And yet he led his people through the Red Sea. You may not see him standing next to you in the fire. And yet the Bible says he's there. Let's look at the first chapter in the 20th verse. This verse takes place. I guess I ought to read it to you, huh? 
Are you all there? I'm not there. I got to preaching a little bit. Is that all right with y'all, or would y'all prefer us to be calm? I don't even like to read church signs that say be calm. Chapter 1, verse 20. A little nondescript verse. Why don't we just start in 19? Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree, and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also, let the king give her a royal position to someone else who is better than she. Then when the king's edict is proclaimed, in verse 20, throughout all his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. This is a turning point in the book, and it's in the very first chapter. What has happened? A king will no longer allow the audience of women. He will not allow anyone to approach him unless he has requested their presence. This presents a problem because there's a satanic plot about to be hatched. The satanic plot is to destroy the Jewish people at the hands of Haman. And God's answer to the satanic plot is that he has strategically placed a woman who is going to have to go approach the king. Oh, come on now. Have you never been in a situation where you thought, God, raise me up just for this? And then it all turned and seemed to go south. I thought I was going to teach these people. I thought I was going to see them get saved. I thought this person would get healed. You thought so many things and now it's not, where is God and all of that? In the book of Esther, in the first chapter, in the 20th verse, is the very first time in the book of Esther an acrostic appears. I'm not going to show you this one. I'm going to tell you about it, but I'm going to show you some others. In the 20th verse, <coughs> taking the first letter of four Hebrew words, it spells out Y-H-W-H. Right at this turning point in the book. It speaks the unpronounceable name of God from Exodus 3.14. The name that says, I am and I always will be. I exist all by myself without help. A way of saying, I was, I am, and I always will be. Where is God at this turning point in Esther's life? He says, behind the scenes... But ever-present is the tetratomagron that is Y-H-W-H represented as Lord is not present in your Bible and yet is within your text. It'll get clearer in this next one. In the fifth chapter and fourth verse, we have such an interesting thing happen. This verse, oh Brent, you'll like this, is in King Jimmy. And answered Esther, if unto the king it seems good, let come the king. And Haman this day unto the banquet that I have prepared for him. What is the setting of Esther 5.4? This is when a woman has come into the presence of God. Rather, the presence of a king. And God has given her the wisdom to know how to turn the tables on Haman. She's arranging the meeting so that God can expose him. And what do we see? We see right here a yod then a hay, then a vav, and then a hay. Y-H-W-H, yod hay, vav hay. At the turning point when the tide begins to go God's people's way, 
who is standing in the background? The Lord is. His unpronounceable name, but I thought his name wasn't in the book. By the time we get to the 13th verse of chapter 5, we see hatred for Mordecai being expressed. Haman is in a rage. Look at the 13th verse. He says, but all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. Does it sound like Haman hates him? Do you know what it is to be hated for the gospel? Do you know what it is to be hated because you love the Lord? Because in this verse, the divine name is written in an acrostic again. yod heh vav appears in this verse. But I thought God wasn't present in the book. He's present in the first chapter when the rise of the saving figure is trying to be prevented. He's present in the fifth chapter when the saving figure appears. He's present later in the fifth chapter when all-out fury is being expressed against God's chosen. Turn with me to the seventh chapter. Anybody like the number seven? In the seventh chapter and the seventh verse, we find something. The king got up in a rage, left his wine, and went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, whose fate was decided? Haman's, staying behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. The king has seen what Haman has done. His plot is exposed. He's determined to do evil to Haman. This phrase in Hebrew appears right here. Yod, hey, vav, hey. At the moment that there is a decree issued against Haman and it's exposed, God again signs his name in the text from right to left because apparently he speaks Hebrew. So many times we don't see God present in our circumstances and yet his stamp is on them in an undeniable way. We just need to know where to look. Next time you see in a Bible dictionary that the name of God doesn't appear in the book of Esther. There's only five acrostics in the entire book that make any sense in Hebrew. And I just showed you four of them that are the unpronounceable name of God. Anybody want to know what the fifth is? King Xerxes asked a question about who has done this. And the answer is an acrostic in Hebrew that says, I am. <laughs> you have to love the Lord God Almighty. And yet that's not even what I came to show you. How many of you knew about those? Oh, well, then I got you right there. How many of you love the New Testament? Do you love it? Do you love the Lord? What is the single best, but also the darkest hour of the New Testament? The crucifixion of Jesus. Turn with me to John 19. Come on, somebody say, I want to hear it. Here comes John 19. You ever entered into a situation and you were pretty sure you would be the Savior? 
You're pretty sure you're God's man of power for that hour. And somehow or another, you end up in the people's blender. You end up in the meat grinder. And you can't understand what's happening. In John 19, starting in verse 19, Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign. For the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And the sign was written in the language of the Jews, Latin and Greek. The chief priest of the Jews protested to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. There is such an interesting thing here. You can go to that next slide. Do you hear that the rulers of the people are angry with the way the sign is written? And that the sign is written in three languages. What language did Pilate speak in his bedroom at home? Latin. And probably as a business language, he also spoke Greek. But apparently, he was at least familiar with Hebrew because he had a sign written in three languages. And there are a lot of ways to make this phrase in Hebrew. But if you write it in Latin and then you transcribe it to Greek and then from those you look at it in Hebrew as a word-for-word translation, the way that it's supposed Pilate would do this. In Hebrew, you would say, Yeshua ha-Nasariah va-Malek ha-Yehudim. That's interesting. Let's go to the next word. Wonder why this upset those Hebrew people so much. This is the Hebrew script as it would appear upon the cross. Maybe we still don't get it. Let us go to the next slide. That's a yod, that's a hey, that's a vav, and that's another hey. Let's transliterate that one more time. Yeshua ha Nasaria, Vamalek ha Yudim, YHWH. He posted on the sign for the world to see Yahweh in a way that every Jew would notice. Many of the Psalms are written in acrostic forms. It's a common Hebrew practice to drive home a point. Let us read John 19 again. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city And the sign was written in the language of the Jews, Latin and Greek. The chief priest of the Jews protested to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be king of the Jews. Please, Pilate, just change one word so that it doesn't proclaim this man as Yahweh. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. I think he got a kind of sick smile at the way it upset them so. They had put him in a pretty terrible position. Pilate's wife warned him, don't have anything to do with this man. He's innocent. Pilate seemed to try to let him go a couple times. Tried to give them Barabbas instead. And now he's a wicked man doing wicked things. 
and he, along with the Jewish people, put the Messiah to death. Here in that moment, perhaps as sinners do, even when they know they're doing wrong, they resent those who are causing them problems. He found one more way to kind of stick it to the Jewish people. You mean God can use all of those mixed motives to proclaim his message? Oh, yeah, he uses you every day. He uses you every day. I want to encourage you. It doesn't matter. Does it surprise you this is the most controversial acrostic in all of the Bible? There's so many ways to say this in Hebrew. Some would say no. In Hebrew, that would say uh, Jesus of Nazareth, a king of the Jews. Well, you don't think Pilate could have written it that way? But in any case, it's when you transliterate from Latin to Greek to Hebrew that it becomes very clear. And many, many scholars uphold it. But why do you think it's so contested? Even among Christians, among godly men, they don't like the idea that God was on the cross. No, 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 it's just the Son of God. I'm not going to debate all of that theology. I'm just trying to tell you there are so many reasons to not have this on the sign. How many reasons do you have to believe that God does not exist in your situation? Maybe you can find a theologian that says he wouldn't do it. Maybe you can find a preacher that says God doesn't work like that. Maybe in your own heart you're condemned because you've heard the voice of the accuser, but I want to tell you what is written. It's written. The Bible is true or the Bible is not, and I believe that he exists in my situation and that he rewards those who serve him. How about you? Does he reward those who serve him, saints? Will he reward you? Does he exist in your situation? Somebody say amen. amen. Turn with me to Psalm 16. Did I give you at least five things you didn't know, or do I owe somebody dinner? And are you preaching Sunday? Hmm? It's worth coming to church, friends. Say there when in Psalm 16. I'm in Psalm 8, now 10, 14. I just made 16. Psalm 16, look at verse 7. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Notice, saints, that he says, I have set the Lord always before me. Do you have the ability to make God do anything? Of course not. And yet verse 8 says, I have set the Lord always before me. You can't move God. You can move you. And you need to bend yourself in your difficult circumstances. You need to flex yourself in those circumstances into a position where you can see him who is invisible. See, if you set him before you, then you will believe he's right there watching you, waiting for you, waiting to reward you. 
He either exists in your situation or he does not. And the writer of this psalm, who is David, and writing in the spirit of Jesus said, I have set him before me. In the midst of your darkest hour, you can be crucified. And yet his name can be written on the sign above your head. You can be a scared little Jewish girl named Hadassah, and his name will be written into your story. You can be a venomous Haman, barking out murderous threats against Mordecai. And the scripture doesn't say Mordecai said a thing, but God still stamped his name on that scripture. I saw that, Haman. And by the way, how did the book end? With the elevation of Mordecai and the death of Haman on the gallows that Haman himself built. Saints, the living God is in this. He is in your situation, Curtis. He is watching your situation, Haley. He's not going to let you go, Joel. It's us who lets him go. You have to choose to set him before you. You have to be determined that nobody will take that sight from you. I have laid hold of that which is invisible, and I won't let it go. When you love something, friends, you don't part with it easily. You don't give up on it easily. You don't let it go easily. I have seen him who is invisible, and I'm not about to let it go, Nolan. He's in my situation. They can bring frivolous lawsuits. They can hurl rocks from other states. Jealousy can drip out of churches like sludge at our feet. And I will not let my view of the king go. How about 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 18? So we fix our eyes. Say, I'm about to fix my eyes. Come on, say it. I'm about to fix my eyes. Not on what is seen, but what is unseen. How do you do that, Spence? How do you set your eyes on what you can't see? Because the Word of God told you it's there. And the more you believe it, the more that which was unseen becomes seen to you. You set him before your eyes. And you don't let him go. Come hell, come high water, Bring the fire. It makes no difference. The word says he's here. He's here and he's going to reward me. For what is seen is temporary. But what is unseen is eternal. What is at stake? Oh, we're not children. This is not scare time for heaven and hell. What is at stake is eternal. It's eternal. Our light and momentary troubles are not worth comparing with something like that. Set him before your eyes. Show some Holy Ghost character and refuse to let it go. Don't let it go. Nobody can take you out of his hand. Don't let it go. This is our last scripture for the evening. This comes from 1 Peter, the first chapter. You
you got difficulties, I know that. I spend most of my time talking to you most of my day. And when we're not doing that, we're usually fixing each other's cars, building each other's houses, and repairing each other's problems. That's how our church operates. One of the more difficult things that has happened to me is not just family issues. Everybody, anybody in here got a crazy aunt or uncle? Come on, everybody's got one, right? And I talk with you all pretty openly about those things. But nothing hurts a pastor's heart more than raising somebody up, watching them do very well for a time, and then they get confused. Maybe they don't view you rightly. Maybe they got their feelings hurt. Maybe you thought you were saying something good to them, and they didn't take it that way. It happens. Anybody who's been in the kingdom long enough begins to rack up some of those things. You do your very best to put them in order, but sometimes you can't. Just can't. Not within your ability. No number of apologies, no number of kind gestures can heal whatever the devil managed to work in there. What do you do? You rejoice that you're receiving the salvation of your soul. You rejoice that that which you couldn't do in saving yourself and granting yourself repentance, God did for you. And if he did it for you, he can do it for them. You rejoice that, yeah, their feelings may be hurt. Maybe they won't even talk to you. Maybe they're saying ugly things about you. But it's not over. There's always tomorrow. And you set Jesus before you and you refuse to look at the unclean thing. I don't mean you ignore a problem. I don't mean that you know good that you ought to do and don't do it. I mean you simply refuse to let something negative and nasty and destructive define your life. You set Jesus before you and you press into him and every chance that something good is happening that comes from him. You rejoice. Listen, do you think Peter made it to be an old man with no hurts in his life? Oh, I doubt it. We view these guys and I'm and you remember that at the end of Paul's life, he said, eh, you know, bring John Mark to me. He's, he's useful to my ministry. It's almost like he's trying to sew up the details that had gone wrong. There are some splits that occur. There are some difficulties that occur. And God is working in it in ways that are just not any more obvious than his name in the book of Esther, but are every bit as real. And sometimes you'd need to read a scripture like 1 Peter 1, 8 and just meditate on it. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with in an, in inexpressible and glorious jo joy. Let's talk about that for a minute. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Amen? Amen. Even though you do not see him now, you believe in him. Amen? Amen. 
Doesn't that sound like believing he exists in this situation and he'll reward you? You believe in him and are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy. What is the defining statement that you believe God is with you? You refuse to deal in despair. You refuse to let an unclean, dirty thing define your life. You set the Lord before you always. Verse 9, for you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. If I am still receiving it, Elvira, then there's still hope for me. I don't have all I'm ever going to have. I haven't finished. I'm not done. I'm still receiving. I got an awful lot, and I'm excited about it, but I got an awful lot more to get, and I'm going to set him before my face, and I am not going to let him go, and I cannot be any worse off than when he found me. I have to be further along. And if he did what he did from then till now, what's he going to do from now till then? We have hope. Don't you let any lying, demonic power tell you otherwise. We have hope. I can stand up here week after week and have no idea what I'm going to preach. And the Holy Ghost will bring me what we need because we are receiving the salvation of our souls. We don't have to consult an old dead database. We don't have to go look on rocks for words and stone. He is in this situation because he's inside of me. He's inside of you. And he will reward you if you seek him.